Welcome to the smoke-filled rooms edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, and I am in Washington this week for a big Axios retreat. I am joined, as ever, in New York, however, by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. And by Anna Shemansky. Hello. But most excitingly, because I am in Washington, I decided to phone up the one and only Neil Irwin. Hi, Felix. Neil is here in the studio in Washington with me, and he is going to explain basically everything. This is going to be like the Neil Irwin explains the world to us edition of Slate Money. We are going to talk about Christine Lagarde and her new job running the European Central Bank. We are going to talk about central banks more broadly and governments more broadly and what they should do in terms of economic policy. This is going to be a macro heavy edition. But we are also going to talk about the impunity of rich and powerful men in general and of Jeffrey Epstein in particular. There's a lot to cover in this show. But first of all, We need to announce to the world that Neil has a new book out. I do. Neil, what is your new book and why should we read it? The book is called How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. It is a guide to navigating a career in the fast-changing global economy of the 21st century, trying to apply some of these lessons from economics to uh, how to have a good, thriving career. So... If you want to make lots of money in your job, read Neil's book, and he will tell you how to do that. If you just want to try and understand what is going on in the economy, then that, you're in luck, is all coming up on this episode of Slate Money. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So let's start with Jeffrey Epstein. Neil, as the resident billionaireologist around here. <laughs> we, we know that he is a pedophile. And we don't know whether or not he's a billionaire, but probably he isn't. Look, the thing is, you can't be as wealthy as he seems to be, as he appears to be, without creating ripples in the financial world, without creating uh, some kinds of public records. Uh, You know, the fact that nobody on Wall Street has memories of doing business with this guy, uh, that he doesn't have a big staff of analysts trying to figure out uh, what investments to make. This is not a hedge fund. This is not a kind of standard, uh, something weird is going on. And figuring out exactly what that is, you wonder if these new charges on the on the sex stuff lead to unraveling what the hell is going on with this business that allegedly exists. Anna, do you have a theory? (laughs) My theory is that it's probably related to Les Wexner, because clearly, like, he's been involved with him for so many years, his house. So Les Wexner is the founder of Victoria's Secret and what's it called, L Brands? Yeah, that's kind of parent companies. And he... became very close to Jeffrey Epstein. And Jeffrey Epstein's house in New York was originally bought by Wexner. So yeah, that, that's a connection. So what's your what's your theory about the Wexner connection? Well, I mean, Wexner is actually a billionaire. So I wonder if this is somehow a way to either tax evasion, money laundering, who knows, you know, maybe we'll go into some of the other <laughs> theories people have. But to me, this seems like the most plausible. 
Well, first, should we back up and just yes. briefly can we recap do some back- yeah. <laughs> this, what Jeffrey this is- Epstein is, um, why we're talking about Jeffrey Epstein now. Yes, please. This um, is why we need Emily Peck on the show, because while all the rest of us just dive into stuff, Emily's like, wait, can we just... Just explain what the hell we're talking recap about here. a little bit. So, so explain. So Jeffrey Epstein, um, a, a decade ago, was uh, he signed a plea deal in Florida, copping to like a prostitution charge, and was sentenced to like a very mild thirteen months in county jail. And he basically didn't have to really even spend time in jail. And and the charges involved him getting these massages that turned into something worse from uh, you know from girls. And um, asking those girls to then recruit more girls. And that was all kind of like dead and buried a decade ago. And then the Miami Herald, a reporter named Julie K. Brown, um, went back and looked at that plea deal after the man who negotiated it, Alexander Acosta, was nominated to be the labor secretary. And what she, what she investigated and her stories really got us to this day, this week, when Epstein was charged again in New York for sex trafficking, essentially. And now and Acosta, has, Acosta now has now resigned because he negotiated this really the sweetheart deal. He didn't even tell the victims. He kept the victims basically in the dark about the deal. Which was illegal. Which was illegal. And a federal judge, after Julie K. Brown's story came out and the case went back to court, a federal judge found it to be illegal. So there was like... Finally, with the indictment this week, people were finally like, Acosta should probably resign, even though the news about the deal came out, you know, at the end of it came out last year. For some reason, no one was that upset last year. But now, finally, they were upset enough to get this guy to resign. So that is why we're talking about Epstein. And he's people call him a financier in all the stories and they call him a billionaire in all the stories. But turns out there's like almost, as Neil was saying, zero evidence that he is either of those things. Yeah. So yeah, so Jeffrey that's Epstein why we're gets talking- a, that's why we're talking about it. And Jeffrey Epstein gets this very sweetheart deal from Acosta. He also gets a very sweetheart deal from the NYPD, where he's meant to check in to the courthouse every ninety days in New York, and otherwise he's in violation of his parole terms, basically. And he never does that. And the NYPD is like, yeah, that's fine. You don't need to. Um, the Cy Vance, the attorney general in New York, tries to get him downgraded from like a level three sex offender to a level one sex offender for, again, reasons which are very mysterious. And generally, whenever he comes into contact with any kind of law enforcement, they seem to be bending over backwards to be incredibly nice to him. And no one knows why, except this one like weird rumor about him being some kind of an intelligence asset. I mean, I think more broadly, the way Epstein was able to maneuver the legal system sort of just reveals how powerful men just get away with stuff by virtue of having lots of money, influence and power. I mean, all his friends are Bill Clinton, um, Alan Dershowitz, of course, is his lawyer. Donald Trump. Donald Trump was his friend. I mean, Woody Allen. Woody Allen. (laughs) All the best. (laughs) Only the best people. He He ran with a great crew. Yeah, he was a really good guy. Uh, And so much of this was just kind of hiding in plain sight long before the 2008 charges. If you read magazine profiles going back 20 years, there are references to these, you know, very young women and girls kind of around all the time. People in in elite circles who were in his orbit knew that something bad was going on, uh, and it just persisted for years and years and years. So this is my question for Anna, is we know that this, as Neil was saying, was was hiding in plain sight. We know that he had effective impunity until he didn't. My question is, is this something that all – 
rich and powerful men can expect? Or is this something which was uniquely weird and impunity-ish for Epstein? Well, on the one hand, I would say it's sadly unsurprising, you know, even just thinking of like the comparison to something like Harvey Weinstein, this is outside of finance, but the idea that something was hiding in plain sight, people knew about it forever, and nobody really seemed to care that much because the person did have a tremendous amount of money and power. And Harvey Weinstein, just to be clear, is still like free and out in the world and not in jail. Right. Now, it would surprise me (laughs) to find out that you had another person leading like a very well-regarded, very familiar fund that was engaging in this type of criminality of of, of this level. Now, a private fund, though, that's a separate issue. Now, granted, I also don't even think he has a fund. I think this is all BS. But I'm I mean, I'm still I'm frankly more on the line of what I said the first time, which I, I don't think this is overly surprising, although the level of what has actually come out publicly and for this person to, in theory, still be able to be operating like that surprises me. I don't think this is surprising at all. I mean, we have the Weinstein example. Donald Trump is the president. We know that we live in a society that values rich men over young, poor girls. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that people could get away, that these men could get away with this in plain sight because that's, it's not unusual. I mean, he is, his behavior is like to the extreme, but I don't think it's actually that unusual of behavior. There's so many examples now that we have since, you know, since Me Too happened of... Well, I do think running an underage prostitution ring is like... A li- <laughs> I mean, like, I, don't get me wrong. Like, there's a lot of horrible behavior, but like this is this is particularly awful. Right. Although we don't yet have actual evidence that he ran up... A- yeah, and I guess I actually I should take that back a second because I do think sometimes well, we do. I mean, if you read- is problematic. Oh, yeah, we are, shouldn't call them prostitutes. Actually, we really shouldn't call them children. prostitutes because they're children who are yeah. actually victims. But, yeah. So right. basically running a sex trafficking ring. Let's yeah. call it that, yeah. And I, yeah, look, I think if, if these girls were a little bit older, where they were, if they were legally of the age of consent and there was not the coercive aspect, that might be much more commonplace in high finance than, uh, than we like to talk about. It's definitely something which you here, you know, in the in the chalet parties in Davos, you know, there's definitely no shortage of like non-underage girls sort of um, floating around in various parties. It's a really kind of gross and disgusting aspect of capitalism is the way that these rich and powerful men, like one of the first things they seem to want to try to do with their their wealth and their power is to accumulate sex objects. I guess maybe it isn't surprising, but it's weird how often it happens and how predictably it happens. Right. And we'll talk about Christine Lagarde in the next in the next <laughs> segment. <laughs> But what's mean, the what, segue there? Okay, okay. <laughs> all right, Emily, can you can you please can you please like draw those dots? I'm, yeah, are you I mean, need to? who did she take over from? Oh, that's true. At, at, ah, ah. Yeah. another one of these. Yeah. You know these these dudes, Dominic Strauss Kahn. You know, and he, what did he do again? He raped a woman. Allegedly, just allegedly, to be, raped raped to be woman, fair, I mean, and, um, in, in the Sofitel in, in right. New York, yes. and then a whole bunch of a whole bunch of stories started coming out about him, mm-hmm. you know, being part of these like sordid tech sex parties in in France, right? And there were lo- there were various like um, <laughs> pimping charges and stuff, which which started getting brought up. But again, 
you know, the minute he gets arrested, suddenly he's living in a, in luxurious house arrest in Soho, New York, wasn't it? With with, mm-hmm. with his wife, yeah. who's also a gazillionaire. I mean, this is the other thing: the women, like Ghislaine Maxwell, who was Jeffrey Epstein's companion through all of this, and was apparently like even more of a pimp than he was. Like she is an, is a little bit like DSK's wife in that you know she came from lots of money. Her her dad was Robert Maxwell, the billionaire who became, I think, the world's first ever negative billionaire. There's a lot of just scandal floating around. But yes, let's segue beautifully (laughs) from Dominic Strauss-Kahn, or the latter-day Dominic Strauss-Kahn, Jeffrey Epstein, to his successor. Christine Lagarde. Christine Lagarde. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Who we're Christine not talking Lagarde. about because she is going to start running the ECB in November. So what happened is that Dominique Strauss-Kahn was head of the IMF, and then he ran into all of this legal trouble and scandal, and so he needed to step down as head of the IMF, and he was replaced as head of the IMF by Christine Lagarde, and she has been at the head of the IMF ever since, up until last Tuesday, when she resigned her duties as head of the IMF because she has now been nominated to take over the European Central Bank. Neil, what does this mean? This means that we have a experienced statesperson leading the uh, most important institution in Europe right now, you know, replacing Mario Draghi, who's really guided the Eurozone through this horrible crisis and helped them uh, stay together and avoid a breakup of the entire European experiment. And Draghi is now being replaced with this really accomplished woman who is not an economist, but uh, does have a political skill that very few people can match, can, you know, go toe to toe with European leaders on their own terms and uh, try and try and get the European economy back on track. So this is my big question about Lagarde is, or rather the ECB, they have chosen a politician rather than an economist. Is it true to say that the her job as head of the ECB or the head of the ECB's job is actually as much political or possibly even more political than it is economic? Look, the, an institution like the ECB, they have hundreds, maybe thousands of economists running around building models, trying to figure out what their options are. The real tricky part is trying to get European governments to do the things they need to do. Uh, The central problem in Europe for the last decade has been a shortage of aggregate demand. Germany, other Northern European countries don't want to spend money, don't want to engage in any kind of deficit spending. That has held those economies back. If Christine Lagarde is more savvy about navigating the the intricacies of European politics than some economist off the street, uh, she'll be a far better ECB president than that uh, random economist would be. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think like A, she clearly understands how to communicate well both to other government heads as well as to market participants. She has a lot of credibility in the market and she's been working with a lot of these players for for many years. And, and I think that at this point, because of how powerful, probably too powerful, 
central banks have become, those skills are, are almost more important than just simply being able to do the modeling that, um, as Neil said, they have. it's not like they have a dearth of economists there. So why was so, everyone... So when you look at Jay Powell in the United States, I mean, there was a lot of criticism for him because he's not an economist, right? And then there was a like outcry about it. Why doesn't Lagarde get the same kind of outcry or upset? I would say there... Just despite what I just said, and although I, I, I just contradict myself, yeah, I, I do think Lagarde's a good choice. But one issue when you bring in people who aren't economists and don't have a record of also their kind of a published record of their theory of monetary policy, it can potentially make them a little bit harder to predict. Like if you have somebody coming in who's an economist, they, they've probably written quite a bit about like what what they perceive the role of monetary policy to be. If you bring in someone who's a bit outside of that, you know, that that's going to make it a bit harder for people. But the flexibility that someone like that brings also is true. exactly yes. kind of what you want at this time yep. when economists I think, aren't I think the, often right anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think one of the main criticisms, if not the main criticism of Jay Powell, was just that he's not Janet Yellen. And Janet Yellen were, is, is like an extreme, not only an extremely good economist, but she's one of the very few economists who turns out to have actually been right most of the time. And when you have an extremely good economist who turns out to have been right most of the time and is doing an extremely good job at the central bank, it just doesn't make any sense to replace her as Fed chair. And right. it kind of doesn't matter who she was replaced by. Right. If you replaced her with anyone, you'd be like, what are you doing? We have a very good central bank chair already. It, the ECB situation, of course, is not like that. Draghi's term was coming to an end. He needed to be replaced by someone. And then the question becomes, do you want to replace him with a monetary policy expert or do you want to replace him with a politician? And the Fed chair that comes to mind for me is not Powell so much as Bernanke. And Neil knows this better than anyone. But Ben Bernanke, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, basically spent his entire life giving testimony to Congress and loosening monetary policy and basically begging the government to spend more and do more on the fiscal side, as they say, to give more fiscal stimulus because he couldn't do it all on the monetary side. That you know, Monetary stimulus wasn't enough. We needed more fiscal stimulus. And what he, what he wanted to do was have political influence over the government and get the government to spend more. And so my question for Neil is, is that also Lagarde's job? Is her job to be politically influential and to be able to give sort of ground cover to any governments in Europe who want to spend more on I think that's an important part of it. Look, I think this idea of a, of a divide between economists and non-economists leading a central bank is really a, a mistake to think of it that way. Paul Volcker did not have a PhD in economics. But he was an economist. Alan Greenspan didn't have a real PhD. He actually got a – his dissertation was for previously published work when he was already uh, well along in his career. Uh, it's it's – Another argument yeah, I mean, against Alan Greenspan, though. <laughs> right. But, you know, look, this is a very political role. And look, they are technocrats. They do have to understand the economics and make good decisions and understand what's going on in the world. But uh, they are inherently political actors. And just because they don't behave in partisan ways, they shouldn't be partisan, but they are making political judgments around what is plausible, what levers can they, can they pull, uh, and are they using them effectively? I think Christine Lagarde is the kind of person who knows enough economics to have sound judgment while having a much more adept sense of that. You know, she can go to Macron or Merkel or Merkel's successor as an equal, not as the, the technocrat off, and off to the side. Would it be fair to say that Draghi's predecessor, 
Jean-Claude Trichet was a better politician than Draghi was. I, I wouldn't say that because Trichet, whatever you think of his political skills, and he was a very skilled bureaucratic infighter. Uh, he could run a, a meeting better than anybody, but he wasn't able to combine that ability with the economic insight to realize the ECB needed to be the lender of last resort. When he handed the reins over to, to Draghi at the end of 2011, things were in a dire state. And so that's why it takes both good economic judgment. I mean, Trichet was raising interest rates in early 2011. Uh, that's good to remember that, yeah. You need to combine this uh, adept political skill with good economic judgment. Uh, if you have one without the other, you're in bad shape. Right, especially at so, a, mo a moment when it's we're likely going to be seeing more of a slowdown in Europe. You're seeing more fragmentation in Europe. And right now, the tools that they've been using just simply aren't working that well. So, I mean, you're going to need someone who's in there who is perhaps a tad unorthodox. Is Christine Lagarde now officially like the most powerful woman in the world? Would we argue that? Angela Merkel. Kind on, of on, on the grounds way. that Merkel is like on, on the way, way out. out. Yeah, yeah. Lagarde is the most powerful. She's running the second the second largest economy sort of in, in the world. I can't think of anyone else more is powerful. She, is there anyone, I mean, never never mind women, is she the most powerful person in Europe? Ooh. I think there's a very strong case yeah. for that. Yeah. yeah. It's on her shoulders now, basically. She's got her glass cliff moment, right? Everything's kind of on edge. Well, that's always the case in, in Europe, though. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Let's be true. fair, it's always a glass Draghi cliff. came in the same situation. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, but she also manages to inherit a slightly less fraught Europe than Draghi did, right? The Italians seem to vaguely have got their fiscal act together at uh, least a little bit. <laughs> not so sure um, about that, but... <laughs> Greek, Greek 10-year bond yields are at 2.5%. You know, there's, there's, it's, there, there might be a storm coming, but if there is a storm coming, we're kind of in the calm before the storm right now. It's probably Brexit, the storm that's coming, or no? Well, that's and that, that's, that's the, the the place where I wanted to to end because, of course, you know, any excuse to talk about Brexit. <laughs> this is Neil, the like, are almost certainly going to happen on October the thirty first, and assuming that it does, what does that mean for? Like, I mean, we'll talk ad nauseum on Slate Money about what it means for the UK, but what does it mean for the rest of the EU? And what does that mean for Lagarde? Look, I, I, I think as a uh, – this might sound paradoxical. Losing Britain, which has always been kind of a, a thorn in the side of the rest of Europe and, and a troublemaker in European Parliament, all these places, um, could leave the rest of Europe with one less distraction and the ability to be a more coherent, cohesive uh, political institution. Maybe that's wishful thinking, but it seems like a very plausible path forward. Oh, my God. I, I, I think I detected a tiny, tiny like sliver of optimism about Brexit, which is... <laughs> I mean, that's not optimistic for Britain. Britain is, you know, we, we kind of know that Britain is doomed. There's nothing we can do about it's that. It's like the good riddance argument, like, oh, it's forget the them. Yeah, no, exactly. The, the, a lot of what Europe was doing for the past 30 years was managing British just, you know, intransigence. And now they don't need to manage that anymore. And that might be good for unity. And unity is definitely something which the EU could use right now. Yeah, although the only thing I would say, though, unfortunately, <laughs> sorry, is just that like Brexit is also a symptom of a larger problem of political fragmentation and the rise. I mean, just the kind of the decline of these 
kind of centrist parties, and that's happening throughout Europe. So I, I would say even even if you ended up having a you know a, a Brexit that in some way you know didn't have enormous economic impact on Europe, you're still going to have those political trends. So okay, so the appointment of the ECB head, the new e, the new EC president, all of these important roles was really done in a stitch up in a smoke filled room in Brussels somewhere by a bunch of centrist technocrats while while completely ignoring the actual results of the European elections. It was deeply undemocratic and yet, you know, it's kind of the right thing to do in terms of trying to keep Europe together. But I guess Anna, what you're saying is that if you behave, if you continue to behave in that kind of deeply undemocratic way, eventually that's going to come and bite you in the ass. Well, I'm just more saying that the political trends in Europe right now are not positive in terms of stability or greater integration of the EU. And you have Hungary, Poland, Austria, right. all making this shift toward a more authoritarian kind of uh, politics. Also, don't poo-poo smoke-filled rooms. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> no, no. I'm sorry. Like if you look at like the history of like a, a lot of politics, smoke-filled rooms often kept a lot of crazy people from being elected. I'm just saying. Smoke-filled rooms is what yeah. enables people like Jeffrey Epstein to get away with. That's a different type of smoke-filled room. It's the same smoke-filled room. They're all room. the same. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's move on from smoke-filled rooms <laughs> to how on earth did everyone manage to just get everything wrong? This is this is basically the theory of, of your New York Times piece, right, Neil, is that if you look at CBO projections, if you look at everyone who knew anything about the correlation between fiscal policy and interest rates, they were all wrong. Right. Um, wrong. <laughs> so explain what they thought and why they thought it, and and are, can can they be forgiven for being wrong? Uh, look, all right. So here's the central idea: uh, longer term interest rates are extraordinarily low, or two percent on the on the ten year Treasury yield. And this is coming at a time when budget deficits are rapidly increasing. We're heading to $1.1 trillion in the U.S. federal budget deficit. If The way I learned economics when I was in college was budget deficits crowd out other investment. They raise interest rates. That hasn't happened. 
Meanwhile, the, the central part of, uh, of how the models of the Federal Reserve, uh, the other central banks work, is when you have low interest rates, when you have low unemployment, you have inflation that rises. When inflation rises, bond yields, interest rates should rise. That hasn't happened either. I think what we're seeing before our eyes is these key elements of macroeconomic orthodoxy, these things that are just in the water in how policymakers shape policy are just turning out not to be so. And I think it's the deepest challenge to how we understand the way the economy works in, uh, in my lifetime. And I think we're still trying to make sense of the implications of these shifts. So to stick with Lagarde just for a minute here, does that mean that like she needs to have a economic insight that all of the economists clearly lack because we need to understand how this new world works? Or does it mean that we should basically give up on economics? No, it means we need to come up with new economics that account for the way the world is actually working. And you know, in the, in the European context, we were, I was suggesting this earlier, it's persuading Germany and the other northern right. European countries that deficit spending is not a thing to be afraid of in this environment. You know, what, the, the, what these interest rates are signaling is there's a global glut of capital. We are underinvesting in the future. Uh, you got to take advantage of that while the, while the getting's good. Is there a way... I'm just kind of randomly thinking out loud to you, but is there a way to tie in rising inequality to what's going on with all this now when you have economic growth that's only benefiting, you know, a, a small slice of the population? Is there something that economists aren't looking at in terms of inequality and rising inequality, which well, is something I mean, like having... Lagarde has really focused on in, in her remaining years at the IMF, right? Well, the very loose central bank policy has obviously been part of the reason we have some of the wealth and quality we have just uh -huh. because it has propped up markets. I mean, that is that is part of it. It has, you know, um, kind of inflated asset values to a certain... You, you could make that... I mean, there, there's definitely a very, very strong connection there. So, But I think one of the bigger questions here is when you're talking about social spending, when you're talking about what is possible, where you have the fiscal space for, there is an argument to be made and you don't have to go into like MMT land. You know, people like Olivia Blanchard and, and Larry Summers have talked about, you know, this idea that deficits are always bad, that you, you know, especially, you know, deficit spending when, it, when it's not like post-recession, that that's always bad. Like that, it, we really question that now when you have forces like globalization and technology and weaker unions that are causing us not to have the same type of inflation pressures that we've seen in the past that then suggest, well, you know, both, you know, obviously Germany. I mean, <laughs> Germany should have been spending a lot of money and also just borrowing more because um, we need more boons. But um, in order to stimulate more aggregate demand. Retreating a little bit from the economists, you know, the, the economic jargon here, basically what we're saying is that deficits on their face are good. It's free money. The, the government gets to spend money and it doesn't need to raise it in taxes. But there are two reasons why people don't like deficits. There are two like negative consequences to running deficits. One is higher interest rates, and that hurts the economy because it costs more to borrow money. And then the other one is inflation, and that hurts the economy because everyone hates inflation. What we have seen in an era of historically high deficits in both Europe and even more so in the US is a complete lack of either higher interest rates or inflation. And if you can run deficits without higher interest rates 
and you, if you can run deficits without higher inflation, there's literally no reason not to run deficits. Is that basically the argument? I mean, Germany literally has negative interest yeah. rates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Literally, investors are flinging money at them saying, please borrow from <laughs> us, please. Uh, uh, and, and they're not taking the opportunity. I think that this point about inequality, actually, there's something to that. You know, if you're, if you're a billionaire, if you're Jeff Bezos, you're not spending anything resembling uh, the amount of resources you have available to you. Uh, if you're a middle class person, if you're a working class person, you might be spending every dime. I think the shortage of aggregate demand might be a reflection of how much uh, wealth inequality has developed and the wealthy are just going to save more than they spend. And that might be a part of the underlying story here. I feel like the one person who's spending money here is Jeffrey Epstein. Like he he was never a billionaire, but he certainly spent like a billionaire. He had the private jets and the private islands and the 7,500 acre ranches in New Mexico. Basically, the way that we have to boost this economy is for everyone to spend like billionaires, even if they're not billionaires. I mean, isn't one of the reasons inflation isn't really moving like like unemployment is low, but wages aren't really going up. And that in part has to do with inequality and it has to do with, you know, how there aren't as many employers as there kind of needs to be. And there's you know, there's you don't have a lot of choices in the job market, even though unemployment is low. I know the quit the quit rate is pretty high. People are quitting, are voluntarily quitting their jobs at an almost unprecedented level, precisely because there are lots of other jobs out there for but them. I also, think one of the things know, we're we're also seeing a lot of people being pulled back into the labor force, and this is a good thing, is that you're seeing people who would not necessarily have had an opportunity to get back in the labor force, but are now being you know, people. But they're not making enough money. You know, they're the making more than they're making before. Wages are going up a little, but not as much as you would think, given the low unemployment. You're number. right. And, you're and right. that's something that seems to be broken, too. And maybe if wages did rise more, we would see the inflation that economists say we're supposed well, to be seeing. Well, let, let me ask would, Neil. Yeah. Neil, if wages were to start really taking off, do you think that would be inflationary? Not as much as in the past. I think this is another thing we heard from Jay Powell, the Fed chair, about uh, this week. He was testifying on Capitol Hill, and uh, he was he owned up to this dilemma. He was asked repeatedly. You know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez asked. You know, is uh, is the Phillips curve real? Is the is there a breakdown in this relationship between unemployment and and inflation? And he said, absolutely, it is. Um, he used a line that I think might be on his tombstone: uh, "You can't say something's hot if you don't see evidence of any heat." And uh, <laughs> referring to the labor market, and if you don't don't see wage increases, why would you say that the labor market is too hot? And I, you know, look, I, I think you might be able to find structural reasons for that. I think a whole generation of employers, managers has gotten out of the habit of giving raises, of yeah. competing to keep workers. And I think the longer we have a hot job market, the longer we have 3.7% unemployment, the more that will break down. And we might find a world where employers have to get back to a world where they're really having to compete to get workers. And that means paying more, better benefits, more flexibility, all those good things. But I guess my question is, if you have that. If you have higher wages, better benefits, more flexibility, all those good things, does that cause inflation? Eventually, but we're a long way from that point. It depends on whether the economy can absorb it or not. And we don't know that. But I do think the larger issue here is that if you're talking about actual policy and why things like in the US with Powell or in Europe with Lagarde, why this is important is because there is this idea right now that, you know, because we're seeing unemployment at a certain level, well, then we should probably be more interested in raising rates. And then there's more of an argument now to say, well, maybe we should actually hold back on that because we want to let this ride out a little bit more, see if we can bring pe more people back into the labor force, see if right. we can start to actually have a little bit more wage pressure. My colleague Courtney Brown wrote a great piece for Axios about how 
in especially like poorer black and brown communities in the United States, they're just now beginning to see the kind of competitive labor markets where people start like getting raises and that kind of thing, you know, 10 years into the recovery. And normally what happens 10 years after a recovery is that you get the Fed rising, raising interest rates, or you get like another recession, or something happens to really hurt that dynamic in these communities. And they're looking at this long recovery right now. And they're saying this is our one opportunity to really take advantage of this recovery. It's just really beginning to help right now. So give us all the help you can, because it's really rare for us to have this opportunity. And let's, you know, let's see these interest rate cuts, because hell, there's no real downside to them. And isn't there also a broader conversation that needs to be had? I think there was a a New York Times piece. I don't think it was by Neil a little while back about how we sort of are looking at the wrong economic indicators. Like if unemployment is low and we're not seeing we're not seeing inflation go up or interest rates rise, maybe there are other economic indicators we need to be looking at that we're not that aren't considered important anymore that we have to kind of take into account. Yeah, I mean, the biggest one is the employment to population ratio, especially if you adjust for the demographics. So this is uh, looking not just at, at the people who are actively looking for work, but how many people who aren't even looking for work uh, you know, what's the total ratio of adults mm-hmm. to, to employment? And we're mm-hmm. still way below those levels of 2000. So, mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, the unemployment rate's just as low as it was back during the peak of the 1990s boom. But on that measure, we're still a couple of percentage points away. Especially uh, among men. The, the especially women among have, men. Have women have back. mostly caught up to that era. Men have not. Uh, you know, millennial men, if you look at men in the kind of 25 to 30 to 35 to 45 range. Participation rates are quite low. Um, Why is that still the case? We don't know the answers, but trying to solve that is part of kind of having a a job market that works for everybody. On which note, I think we will move on to a numbers round. Anna, do you have a number? I do. (laughs) My number is a very not me number, but I don't know. I thought it was funny. So $750 million. So who do you think has the highest grossing concert tour of all time? Rolling Stones? Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran? Ed Sheeran. Okay, this is the end of days. (laughs) Ed Sheeran? Yes, apparently. So he's on this, his Divide tour where he is in, right now, like nominally, he will have the the highest grossing tour, but he's also on track to actually, even in inflation adjusted terms, be able to beat you too, having the highest grossing tour. And it's interesting because part of the way he does it is just he has way more shows than everybody else. But he actually often has a lower average ticket price because he wants to get more people to be able to come to his shows. But he just has like almost twice as many shows as like a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce. So he, he plays like five shows where everyone else would play two, that kind of exactly, thing. Exactly, yeah. But Ed Sheeran. Felix, I feel like this is a win for goofy looking white guys everywhere. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely, I, I, don't, I don't get it. And I say this as a, as a self-admitted pop tart. You know, I love you know, really cheap and cheesy pop music more than like anyone else I know. Wait, what? (laughs) For real, Do people know this? I'm sorry, um, go on, Felix. I I am, you know, what can I say? I love (laughs) Selena Gomez and even Taylor Swift, but Ed Sheeran is beyond the pale. What is happening? (laughs) Um, My number is three. I'm going to move on from this number because it's (laughs) far too much. My number is 3%, which is the amount of 
revenues that big tech companies are going to have to pay in France to the French government as a tax. It's a big tech tax. You need to be a large global tech company. You need to be a Facebook or a Google or Netflix, someone like that. And if you are very large globally and also very large in France, then you need to pay 3% of your French revenues in tax to the French every year. This was attempted on a pan-European level and didn't work, but it's happening in France. And once that happens in France, I have a feeling that it will start taking off and start appearing in other countries too. And this could be an interesting way of taxing these companies who notoriously pay very low taxes a lot of the time because they don't have a lot of profit. And it's particularly interesting because it's based on where you have your sales. Not your right. profits, so you but your sales, you can't, right? You can't yeah. hide the profits right. in, in the Isle of Man or whatever they, exactly, they, yeah. they normally do. And that's something you have had some Democratic candidates actually talking about in terms of corporate taxation based on where sales are. Neil, do you have a number? I have a number. $747.1 billion. Well, that, be... That's almost exactly a thousand times more than the Ed Sheeran growth. <laughs> it is. And that is the U.S. federal budget deficit for the first nine months of this fiscal year. It's up 23% from the previous year. It's just remarkable to me that we have that kind of growth in the budget deficit in a time of 3.7% unemployment, a steady expansion. That's the kind of expansion you expect to see during a recession, during a crisis. That's not what we're in right now. To me, it's a remarkable testament back to where we where we were a minute ago on on low uh, long-term interest rates uh, it's a remarkable indictment of the idea of how the economy works that we keep uh, spending a lot more than the government's taking in and yet there's no apparent negative results Emily I have another seven number my number is 777 oh. that oh. is the address of a man who lives on Washington Street in Manhattan named Noam Gotsman. Oh, is this the curb cut story? This is the curb <laughs> cut story. So Noam I Gotsman, love this story so much. <laughs> he has a house in downtown Manhattan where parking is scarce. And he did what's called a curb cut. So he made like a little like rampy thing, you know, that, that cars drive up and pretended he had a parking space in front of his house. He pretended he had a garage. He built a front door. Or yes. a back door, rather. Uh -huh. He built a back door very, very large and made of glass in a way that if you kind of walked past it quickly with the curb cut in front of it, you would assume was a garage. Yes, but and he put fact, up a sign. And, and he put up a sign saying active driveway, even though it is not an active driveway because it is not a garage. No one can park in there. You open the door and all you see is a staircase. There's nowhere to park. Yes. And he even had people out there patrolling to keep people from parking in front of his fake <laughs> space that the New York Police Department says doesn't even exist. And went so far as a cop actually ticketed and towed his neighbor's car. He has this very angry neighbor <laughs> who features in the Daily News story where everyone learned it's, about it, Noam Gossman. It's, it's an amazing story. But yeah, what happens is that he puts this sign up saying active driveway and the police, they don't know that it's a fake driveway. And what happens is if someone parks in this space, which he uses as his own personal private parking space, basically, mm -hmm. if someone else parks in this space, then all of his employees come running out saying, you're not allowed to park there. And if someone parks there anyway, then they run up to the nearest policeman and say, ticket this car. It's illegally parked and it gets ticketed. And the minute it gets ticketed, they then phone up the tow company and, get, and they say, tow this car because it's been ticketed. It's absolutely outrageous. It's so... So yeah. Noam Gotsman, he has a hedge fund, of course, GLG of course. partners that actually probably exists, I think. Yes, yes. And, <laughs> that um, exists. He, he, he once owned a European frozen food company and he's legitimately rich, unlike, I guess, Jeffrey Epstein. But I think this is 
like a very small scale example of the same thing we talked about at the beginning of the episode. It's just another rich guy thinking he can do whatever the hell he wants because he has a lot of money and he can hire people to patrol his fake parking spot and actually do something that it's not criminal criminal, like capital C criminal, but it's kind of like lowercase c wild kind of entitlement kind of criminal that is just they're both sides of the same coin. And that's all I'll say about that because Felix said most of it. It's it's a great story. Read it on the Daily New York News. Daily News. Yeah. Bless him. Um, <laughs> thank you, Neil Lowen, for coming in. It was Felix. awesome to have you. Many thanks not only to Jessamine Molly, but also to Melissa Kaplan, who's here in D.C. and managed to produce this show on a sort of two-city basis. Many thanks to all of you lot out there for listening. We really appreciate it. Keep the emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com. And Emily, can you name all of the cousins who we're thanking this week? So all my cousins who have been sitting in the studio listening and, and cheering us on, Jordana, Norman, David, and Ami. And three of the four came in from Israel. So thank you for coming. Thank you for coming all the way from Israel because that's a long way to come to listen to Slate Money. We, we, we appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, seriously, like they have the internet in Israel. You don't need to come this far. Um, but yes, we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.